hey everybody what's up um i'm here with steve uh patterson of the podcast patterson in pursuit um thanks for being here hey my pleasure thanks for having me yeah so basically what what you do is you're an intellectual traveling traveling the world um interviewing really smart people documenting it learning and writing about it mm -hmm. is that is that correct it's fair to say yes I'm, I'm doing a lot less traveling now the, the biggest part of our journey is is over so i've been in arizona for about almost a year now settled oh, okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> cool yeah um i kept seeing your name popping up everywhere in uh kind of my circles um first with uh, dr walter block um i saw you had him on a few times and then thaddeus russell mm -hmm. um but what's interesting is you're also into all these other uh, things outside of politics and economics, all kinds of like mathematics, uh, physics, stuff like that. Um, how does politics relate to that? And how does like Walter Block relate to that? Hmm. So I'd say that the best answer is probably a story. So I was really interested in politics many years ago. And... <clears throat> I discovered Ron Paul. I was a Ron Paul convert. I was like, oh man, wow, this guy's saying a lot of true things. I think this is really important. And so I dove pretty deep into libertarianism and political theory. And then as I was uh, learning about political theory, I realized that economics was more fundamental in a sense than political theory. So I started getting into economics and Austrian economics. Mm -hmm. And so naturally you find people like Walter Block and all these other um, Austrian economists who have really interesting things to say. Um, when I was researching economics, then an area of economics that I found really fascinating was uh, methodology, uh, economic methodology. So how do we go about doing economics? What is the method for acquiring uh, economic knowledge? Which is kind of a philosophical question. And then I realized, oh, actually, philosophy is underlying economic methodology. And really, if you want to understand the world, you want to understand what's going on, you got to dive into philosophy proper. So um, recently, for the past, I mean, I guess the past decade now, I've been diving very deep into philosophy, which draws you into the philosophy of mathematics, philosophy of language, mind, um, pretty much everything, philosophy of language. And so kind of in that sense, um, politics was the the gateway drug to philosophy and i still love talking about politics and political theory but for me i think the deepest truths are to be found in um in questions of philosophy oh, okay um where did you get uh started when it comes to philosophy are you into the stoics or nietzsche or actually uh i i consider my my official investigation into philosophy in 2000 and I think it was maybe the beginning of 2011. I was living in DC at the time and I had a roommate. Uh, I was working at a, a libertarian think tank and I had a roommate that said, uh, Steve, I'm gonna change your life. And I was like, all right. He came and he said, go to closertotruth.org. I was like, okay, what's that? So what Closer to Truth is, is a PBS series that's produced by a guy, uh, Walter Lawrence Kuhn, at least he's the host. And he goes around, travels the world and talks to various intellectuals has a conversation with them. He talks about everything that's really important. Um, and the, their incredibly high quality production value, um, the intellectual value is fantastic. It's very Socratic question and answer to all of these uh -huh. um, people, which I found very stimulating. And so um, it's really from that. I mean, the reason he brought that up is because in this, I was in this libertarian think tank and we were doing some training and I, there was another, there was, I had a bunch of colleagues and I kept bothering them with, 
philosophical questions. So like, for example, I remember um, we were talking about libertarianism and everybody was really excited about libertarian ideas. And I was like, well, why are we doing this? Like, how, like what's, what's the point of human flourishing? Why do we even care about such a thing? And they were, they were like laughing at me and mocking me for like, oh, come Steve, what a stupid question. I was like, no, but I mean, wouldn't it be important to figure out something like that? Like before we're going to act in the world, we got to kind of figure out why we're even acting, which is a more philosophical question. Um, so I was, I was bothering him with a bunch of questions like that. And so he came in later and was like, Hey Steve, this is, this is what you're looking for. And from then I, I would, I would highly, highly recommend everybody check out closertotruth.org. Um, I find it much more accessible than a lot of traditional philosophical literature. Uh, the Stoics are good, and yeah, Greek philosophy is good. Descartes is, is a good mm -hmm. place to start. Uh, Meditations is uh, a classic. Um, but really, if, if you want kind of breadth and depth, I would su uh, suggest the Closer to Truth series. Okay, wow. Yeah, um, your website says like you're all about pursuing truth. And, and what I find when it comes to pursuing truth is a lot of times you have to go back to being like a little kid and you have to ask questions that are obnoxious and you don't want to ask. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's where I find uh, libertarianism to be so stimulating is that it takes everything to logical conclusions. Mm. It doesn't stop at, you know, we, we need the government for, you know, X, Y, Z. Well, why do we need them for that? Right. You know, what, what would happen if. Exactly. And I, right. I, I kind of see libertarianism as instead of they're taking the status quo and saying, how can we make this better? It kind of starts from scratch and says, yeah. you know, what if, what could be? Yes, I completely agree. I find that uh, very stimulating um, intellectually. And in my progression through the phases of libertarianism, I, I wound up a, a kind of a radical and if you're not familiar with the, the line of uh, this line of inquiry to ask questions like, why do we have a government at all? Probably seems bizarre. Like, what do you what do you mean? Why do we have a government? Because obviously the world would be in chaos if we didn't have a government, you know. And but you you ask the question sincerely, like you were saying, kind of like a child. Yeah, but what, why could we do could we do it another way? Um, and if you entertain those questions seriously, then I think you get pushed into some pretty radical and exciting ideas pretty quickly because you find, well, maybe maybe the general reasons that everybody has for their political philosophy aren't very well grounded. Maybe they're just kind of being dogmatic. And what's also interesting is whenever you're talking about really any area of thought, you could say, oh, well, um, think about how people thought about this 200 years ago. They were so primitive. They were so foolish. You know, and everybody's like, oh, okay, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, those were foolish people. And now we're wise and smart. It's like, well, what about the political conclusions? We're just repeating political ideas 200 years ago. Are they as naive as some of the <laughs> medical ideas? Might they be? Shouldn't we investigate? Right. <laughs> that kind of that kind of makes me think of uh, the Joe Rogan uh, bit where he's like, I I don't know how any of this shit works. So if <laughs> you know all the knowledge and information goes away tomorrow, I don't I don't know how to make a light bulb. I don't know yeah. how to rebuild yeah. society. So. Yeah. In a lot of ways, we're not any smarter than uh, previous generations. We just have more access. Well, yeah, and and that's a it's a good point, and I think actually a, a wise point for libertarians too, because I I find myself as I'm continuing my investigation, to mm, to recognize that systems that are unjust and perhaps inefficient still have some merit. 
and and like in my in my younger days, um, I was like, you know, just screw the state, smash it all, and we're gonna restart it. And now I, I'm not. I don't necessarily think that would be a good idea on net. Even though a lot of these institutions are foolish and inefficient, I think the consequences of radical upheaval um, aren't. It's not self-evident that it would be very good. And I'm finding too, like a lot of people, a, a huge part of political theory that I had not examined is human psychology. So. Mm -hmm. Even if it's the case that um, there's a lot of superstition surrounding governments and superstitious reasoning, that doesn't mean that on net with humans as they are, that's a bad thing. Like maybe it's the case humans are structured in such a way that they are kind of superstitious. And if you take away their faith in some of their ideas about government, maybe they act worse. That's also a reasonable possibility. So I think the, the kind of swashbuckling approach of let's smash it all and start over, um, I, I'm definitely moving away from that now. <laughs> That kind of reminds me of an argument that I've had with a lot of atheists where, you know, just just because you believe a religion isn't true doesn't mean it can't, you know, be a net good thing for yeah. uh, for people. Yeah. And I, I think we, it's it's a little bit daunting when when you realize that some things you're you're grown up believing are complete lies and, yeah. and propaganda. You, like you said, you want to just erase the state immediately but yeah yeah i i actually consider one of the a really formative moment of my life was when uh it was made clear to me that santa claus didn't exist and <laughs> i thought to myself wait 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 hang on a second everybody was lying to me for my entire life about this thing and all of my friends thought the same thing we were that foolish and it doesn't exist how is this possible that was like the seed of philosophical doubt that was you know <laughs> that was only three years ago no that, that was in uh, in my youth uh, when i was growing up but it really left a mark i was so in, i was deeply embarrassed by that i was like okay i don't want this to happen again i need to find a way to kind of figure out uh, what the truth is, because clearly not only can everybody be wrong, all of my peers be wrong, but people can ex people who you otherwise trust, like your parents, can otherwise be intentionally lying to you, which is a rather disturbing thought. Right. Yeah. Um, that's that's interesting that that stuck with you because, yeah, I'm fine with, you know, you, you might be the one out of a thousand because most people so quickly forget that, you know, something they've been thinking forever can be a, a lot. Mm, yeah. And that's that's one of the things I love um, when you find something that's true that you didn't know before. It makes things so much simpler. Mm. Because when there's deception, um, there's all sorts of just like systems and inefficiencies around it that, I mean, they, they, usually it seems to me that they just become unnecessary. Mm. Once you find what, out what the truth is. Yeah. So a couple of notes on that. One, it's very, very hard to find out what the truth is. So if you do manage yeah. to find out what the truth, it's something to be celebrated for sure. Um, but uh, constantly questioned, I would say. Uh, and two, this is also true. I don't know if this is how you mean it. But this is true in a personal sense that um, things that are untrue or more complicated. So back in the day, I used to be a liar. I used to be a horrible liar. Um, and it was just kind of easy and convenient. Um, but that's really complicated. It's really hard and complicated and a net loss. And if you if you start telling the truth and acting honestly, life is just a million times easier. You don't have to devote all those resources to remembering the yeah. stories that you've told various people. You know, uh, there's a funny, I think it's a, well, I can't, there's a funny quote from Mark Twain on this topic, but I, I would butcher it if I tried to uh, to recall it accurately. But yeah, even personally, it, it's the, the pursuit of truth philosophically has helped me understand just how, uh, um, 
superior an honest life is. Just an, an actual, yeah. like, in personal, in personal uh, affairs, it's it's so much better way to do things. Better for relationships too. I've been married for several years, and it's like honesty is just kind of this essential part to have oh, a good life. Yeah, I I agree. Um, have you read the Ray Dalio uh, principles? Mm -mm. Okay. Um, yeah, his his whole thing is just radical transparency. Um, well, the two main points of the book are radical transparency and radical open-mindedness. Mm. But going to the transparency, for his um, investment firm, he would literally have baseball cards for every employee. And he would have, he had a very complicated system where the employees would rank each other on different uh, skills. And so it would work. Um, it was kind of interesting how it worked too, because you could rank a coworker in a particular skill, but if you were already ranked high in that skill, it, it was kind of weighted. So if you're if you're good according to the system at one thing, mm -hmm. you have more say over somebody else's skill. Mm -hmm. But um, he t he talked about how that was really uncomfortable. And everybody thought he was crazy when he introduced the idea. Mm. But after a while, you get used to it and you kind of look for that feedback. And that's how you get uh, mm. just rapid improvements. And it makes things so much simpler. Yeah, I think if it coming at it from a more skeptical perspective, I would think, OK, well, what if what if there's a difference between those who are perceived as being competent oh, yeah, in a yeah, skill yeah, and yeah, those yeah. who are competent in a skill? Because I because I, I see that like. I'm very critical of the modern academy. And so I see that all the time. You have professionals, professional intellectuals, doctors, PhDs, professors, rating each other, thinking that they're competent enough to rate each other's competence. Um, and after investigating, I, I just don't think that's the case. <laughs> I, I think there's a big difference between you know popularity of ideas, the success of a professor and a professional intellectual career, and the actual quality of the ideas. I think there's a big, big difference there. But maybe it doesn't translate. Maybe maybe the intellectual side is different than like in a business setting. I'm not sure. I can't say. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was a lot on this um, mm -hmm. system. And yeah, there there are a ton of checks and balances that I, I know for sure aren't in uh, academia. Mm -hmm. But uh, talking about academia, I wanted to know uh, what what's kind of your background with college? Did you go? Do you have degrees? Yeah, so I have a useless degree, uh, BA in, <laughs> in political science. Okay. Um, pretty much everything I learned was crap and uh, poorly reasoned, poorly argued. Um, yeah, so so I had a very romantic view of the academy before I got to college. I was homeschooled, and um, my mom was always like, "Now you know you got to do things the right way because when you get to college, you can't get away with the sloppiness." So I was like, "Okay, college is this place where <laughs> and it's a big deal, high quality ideas." And I got there, and uh, that was not the case. I found that was not the case. For the first uh, few semesters, I was very interested in the martial arts and other things, and I wasn't super interested in um, like having a career in the world of ideas or anything. Mm -hmm. But I had a girlfriend at the time that was straight A student. She was like taking things seriously, and I thought, oh, this is actually a good idea. So I became rather serious um, about my studies, and I just. I just completely had my faith shattered into little pieces. Um, the whole, and I've talked to a lot of people in the academy, both, I mean, so I've been traveling around talking to a bunch of academics, students and professors. And when I was working in the nonprofit world, I was doing the same essentially. Um, there are definitely some exceptions. So I don't want to uh, 
poo-poo everybody's college experience and say that in every circumstance it's a joke because I know there are some exceptions, but I think the I think the mass, vast majority of the time um, college is has little relation whatsoever to clear thinking to accurate ideas. It's all about um, socializing, building social connections that are practical in the world. Um, and having a good time if you're a student and you're into that kind of thing. Um, there, there, may be, there may be a couple of exceptions. Actually, to my surprise, I found that in terms of the quality of my conversations with professors, um, I thought I had an, a little interview series where I was at Harvard, and I was expecting it to be uh, inversely proportional with the prestige of the institution. So, like, you get to Harvard, and then these people are just, you know, vomiting and like they, they can't put, put together a coherent thought because they think very poorly of the academy. I actually found that wasn't the case. Um, I was very impressed by the quality of the conversations I had at Harvard and in Oxford. Those were maybe the two exceptions of all of the ones. So it might be that maybe if you get to the highest echelons, you can have, you know, serious uh, intellectual conversation. But I think for most people, um, it's not, it's not, where you should be if you're serious about the world of ideas. I think the existence of the internet is a total game changer for people that are really serious about um, the life of the mind. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, with the internet, I mean, you can just see all the connections laid out for you. Like, I mean, for example, of how I brought up, you know, at the very beginning that you and uh, Walter Block are connected. Mm -hmm. That's That's a connection that for... You know, without the internet, I, I personally would have never made, and I wouldn't have been able to experience the ideas that you're putting out. Absolutely, and uh, you know, all the great guests that you've had on that I've gone into investigate, and also what happens is I can learn what, um, well, I can learn specifically where some people agree and disagree. Yeah. It gets very, very specific um, to where. Like you, like you said, you're you're more practical now. You don't necessarily want to erase the state, you know, immediately. That might not be a net good thing. Whereas I know plenty of people that think differently about that. So I can yeah. see specifically where you agree and disagree. Yeah, and it gets really fine tuned. Yeah, I, I think I think the internet is is really a, a kind of a paradigm shift for the world of ideas. If if you think about the access that your average mind or a, a, a good mind had prior to the printing press. It was very limited, right? You, you had to be yeah. around books. You had to have, have libraries that are handwritten by scribes. I mean, it's like the chances of really becoming educated were very, very slim, just practically speaking. Um, then you had the printing press. That changed a little bit. And then you still had, had to learn how to read and write. And, and mm -hmm. there was a long process. But the internet is kind of blows all of that out of the water. It's like everybody who has access to the internet has access to almost every book that's ever been written pr pretty much for free. Right. Which is, that's, that's insane when you kind of sit down and think about it. That's, that's completely unprecedented. And it also, I think, renders obsolete a lot of the old institutions because a lot universities made quite a lot of sense when you had libraries and you need, you need to access to books. So you needed big libraries. People could get like physically get together, talk about ideas, but with the internet, I have access to all the information and access to not just an, an immediate network of connections at a university, but the whole world. I mean, I, I had a, I, <laughs> I've sent, I've had little bits of correspondence with literally the most prestigious philosophers in the world. I talked to John Searle, and I, I interviewed John Searle, who's a big philosopher, 
Uh, and I interviewed I, in person. This is not, a, a, this is a crazy story. So there's uh, the most prestigious logician in the world. His name is Timothy Williamson. He's at Oxford. And just by emailing him and having a podcast, I was able to interview him in the inner sanctum, like the inner sanctuary area of Oxford. And then we went out to lunch and were served sauteed mushrooms by a butler <laughs> talking about Zeno's paradoxes. Okay. Now, I'm some schmuck. I'm some guy on the internet that has a podcast that's interested and like has created this stuff. I have a little bit of a following, but to think I've, I've like with my background, I went from there to being connected at such a high level and recording the conversation for all of posterity. Like when you step back and look at that, that's incredible. So I think, I think we're going to see a completely new paradigm in the future for who who the real intellectuals are and where they operate and how they can connect with each other without all, without the middlemen. Yeah, this <laughs> is well. I I think um, one of the things that's definitely going to happen is there's going to be an even bigger gap in the wealth in terms of wealth and just uh, intellectually because now it's it's all up to you. It's it's up to me. Yeah. What what do I really want to do? Yeah. Do I want to you know sit around and and you know bitch on social media, or do I you know do I want to watch you know twelve hours of porn, or do I want to learn a bunch of stuff? Yeah. And so I think a lot of people are going to get trapped. Yeah. And then some people are just going to you know become a rocket ship. Yeah, I, I totally agree, and I think the. the people are going to be able to go farther than ever before. I, I really do, because yeah. you can also now not only do you have access in addition to all the books, but all the lectures that are out there and all the YouTube video. I mean, YouTube is such an amazing resource if you know how to use it for learning. But you can also watch the videos at two times speed. So, I mean, the, <laughs> yeah, the, it's like this limitless fount of knowledge. The difficult part now is not the access to the knowledge. It's uh, how to sift through it. It's like there's so much information out there that uh, there's a lot of crap, too. And just so you got to, yeah. you know, it's really hard to, to filter out the signal from the noise. But I think if we can solve that problem, man, the, you know, this is a very exciting time to be um, interested in ideas. And I, one more thing on that note, if, if I was in school still and I was uh, trying to predict the, the, this future career path that I'm currently on, people would say, Steve, there's no way this could work. And nobody would take you seriously. And why would why would Timothy Williamson accept an interview with you? Like you don't ha you've taken two classes in philosophy. Like <laughs> what, this doesn't make any sense. But I'm, in the real world, in practice, it actually worked. <laughs> like yeah. all of those ideas are wrong. I've never once been asked for to see my certification before interviewing anybody. Nobody's like, okay, well, can you send me a copy of your resume and uh, you know, your, your CV before we have an interview, even people yeah. at the very top level, they just, if you send a good email and you have a, you've been able to produce stuff that they can consume, that's high quality. People are totally down to talk with you, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, that's one of the things about the, uh, the crash your career book, um, by Isaac Morehouse that, I mean, it had so many good ideas for just reaching out and you know sub subverting the whole resume thing anything and so that's how i got this whole I idea for the podcast is i'm i'm learning all this stuff about politics just political theory in general 
why not just reach out to some of the people I yeah. like? Uh, I like reading, and it it is the ultimate excuse to just talk to cool people. I've had so many <laughs> yeah. cool experiences already. Yeah, talking to and, and you know, I was just sitting there like, you know, what if I could just have a conversation with with this guy? So just yeah. send him an email. It's really yeah. that simple. Yeah, and uh, in terms of like work too, I after reading the book, I was just like, okay, I'm I'm. <laughs> hold on that's all right that actually recently up. happened to me as well really uh, yeah I, I had to change to a boom mic because my little desk clip broke it's, it's funny i'll keep it you know <laughs> but uh yeah so i i'm doing a lot of work of writing sales letters and i was just you know i was kind of stuck in this like i don't have much experience you know so how can i i prove myself yeah i literally just sent out a bunch of emails to people I wanted to work with. Yeah. And you know what happened? None of them asked me if I went to college. None of them cared because the email itself yeah. was written like, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. Right. He knows the market. <laughs> right. And right. and they can tell, you know? So so can I, what is your um, academic background? So if I can Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um I went to college um and I studied music, uh, mm -hmm. which I you know, if I could do it for free, you know, I'd, I'd do it again, but, yeah, yeah. but it was, it was actually a great experience. Yeah. Trying to do, you know, other things now. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when you're in college, uh, and you have no skills and you have, you have nothing to your name, there's this idea. I remember thinking this actively that like when you s apply for a job, it's gotta be very formal and you need to make sure that your cover letter is written with the right font. You know, and it's go, you got to have the dear sir or madam and all this stuff. And that, that's partially because academics have no idea how the world works. That's like, what I was about to say. Right. Yes. They're totally clueless. <laughs> so they think it's like this pomp and circumstance for like you have to impress. It's like, no, just send a, a clear, concise, good email. And if you're if you're talking to somebody that understands how the world works, that that will be sufficient. People to, to have to sift through the the uh, the formality is a burden. It's much easier to to not have any of that formality yes, yes. Yeah. and that yeah that crash your career just gets to the point of you know an employer doesn't care they want to know how can you provide value for my business right, that's right, it exactly exactly and it, you know so i what i do now is i make all these screencast videos and uh i make little book review videos about like psychology and marketing and stuff oh, like nice. that and you know just building a portfolio it's really simple and college makes it so complicated. Right, right. Well, you know, what you're also going to find is just doing this, even this recreationally talking to people like this, there are skills that you're improving that you're not even going to realize you're improving. There's like even conversational skills, you know, the, the basics of recording and publishing and the actual back end of uploading stuff. There's a bunch of stuff that you just do this if you enjoy it. You're going to find over time you're learning more practical skills about how the world works and you can create value for other people that much more easily. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, the other thing about um, the whole, you know, pomp and circumstance, formalities and everything, that, I mean, that's really like school that's school and government yeah, yeah and yeah. out outside of that area i mean no nobody really cares about right that stuff right i think that's correct yeah yeah um so how did you end up just deciding to travel and interview people like did you have <laughs> did you have like a a moment or it's a scheme no, i'll tell you the story so <laughs> 
Hmm. Okay. So maybe 2013, I'm going to get the dates wrong, but in a very short period of time, my mother passed away from breast cancer. My uh, father had a sudden heart attack. My father-in-law, my wife's father had a heart attack. We lost two grandparents. We lost five of our close family members in like a That's short awful. period of time. Yeah, it was terrible. It was terrible. And we kind of decided, okay, most people do their traveling after they're retired. Like I'm going to do the career thing and I'm going to travel. But for us, it was like, okay, I, we have bad genes. So I don't know if we're going to drop dead in 10 years. I want the traveling experience. And she wants the traveling experience. Why don't we try to make it work now? Um, like before we die. <laughs> uh, okay. So then I was like, okay, well, I also am really interested in this philosophy stuff. And I'm finding that I, uh, I feel like I'm ready to record a lot of conversations. I was already having lots of conversations with people, but I thought, you know, I, I bet if I recorded these people, other people would find them valuable. And so, and then thus Patterson okay. in Pursuit was born. I was thinking, okay, well, maybe we travel. And while we're traveling, I'll get a microphone and I'll send out some emails and I'll go to universities and talk to some people and make, see if I can make a podcast, see, see if I can both kind of um, steal some of the prestige of the academy because me having no degree in philosophy, I'm like, okay, though I'm, I have no degree, I still am having very high level conversations with some of the best philosophers in the world and everybody can follow along and the professor's still engaged and finds the conversation stimulating. So that must mean I'm demonstrating a kind of competence um, without the, uh, the credential. Also, I thought mm -hmm. maybe I could make a little money. So I've got, uh, I've got a little bit of a following now. I've had to take quite a lot of time off because my wife and I have been dealing with some health issues, bad genes. Um, but I feel confident that if I were to, if, if I'm going to do this long term, if I need to do this long term, that I should be able to have a, a, a career of just purely doing whatever the heck I want to do on my own um, with like Patreon and, and book writing and that type of thing. It's not at that level now, but I also don't need it now. I made, I, uh, I have a little bit of um, savings that I can still draw from if I need to. Um, but I feel like that all of the groundwork has been laid for me to really do this uh, as long as I want, which is awesome. So, um, yeah. so yeah, that was the idea. It was kind of a gamble. It was a, it was a mixture of like, I need a, I need something else to do while traveling. And I really <laughs> want to make my, my career in the world of ideas on my own terms. And now too, it's the, the, the amount of time that I have to research and think, think in the bathtub is outrageous. It's absolutely embarrassing. When people start to realize the methodological superiority of working for yourself and, and realizing that you get 50 times as much time to research whatever you want, write whatever you want, talk to whomever you want, think as long as you want. It's like it's so much better if you're really interested in ideas than if you've got a bunch of classes to teach and a bureaucracy to please. And what are you yeah. going to research? Well, it's what are you going to publish? You got to publish what can get published in the paper and, and the journals, which might not be what you're really interested in. It's like, oh man, guys, this is so much better. <laughs> yeah, and it, it just seems like as there's there's going to be like a market for whatever you're doing. So if you're interested in something now. Just just be super open about it and pursue see, it. So you say that, and that might be true. So so this was great to my to my great surprise because I I have a lot of articles and stuff on the philosophy of mathematics, and I'm interviewing people about really really esoteric things that there's not even that many 
professional researchers out there, much less some dude with a podcast and like partly libertarian audience talking about, you know, what are Euclidean points. And mm -hmm. I was not sure if beforehand that was going to be successful at all. But to my surprise, I think you're right. I do think if you're genuinely interested in something, it's for some reason. And if you can communicate the ideas and why they're important, other people, even if they don't know anything about the subject matter, will still find it interesting, which is just makes it that much cooler to be able to investigate what you want. Because it's like, hey, if I'm interested in this for some reason, you probably can be too. And if you're not yet, listen to why these ideas are interesting. And you, <laughs> right. and you, you might become interested. Yeah. And I, I love it because, you know, growing up, I'm always the guy that has just weird interests. And yeah. then you're like, okay, is there a, a market for my interests? Okay, there is. And yeah. what's even crazier is there are weirder interests <laughs> yeah. out there. Yeah. So it, you never you never feel weird because there's always somebody that wants to connect with you on the, on the same ideas. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, if I if you were in a class, they'd be like, Well, do market research about how big the market is for the philosophy of mathematics in your target demographic. It's like it doesn't exist. I have no idea how he would even do that research. I'm just interested in the ideas. I'm going to hit the record button and we're going to see what happens. That's right. a better yeah. way of doing things. Yeah. So, so you started um, traveling and doing all this in mm -hmm. 2013. Is that right? No, that's when people started dying. Um, oh, okay. I think Patterson in Pursuit was 2015, I think, four years ago, something like that. Okay. Yeah, Who's the I, first I, person you uh, interviewed? I actually went back, I thought it would be appropriate to start the journey with a philosophy professor at my um, alma mater. There okay. was, this was actually a really interesting story. So um, a part of the reason I wanted to talk with academics, at least a lot of academics, is to actually demonstrate how bad many of their ideas are. Um, that doesn't sound very nice, but it's true. It was a, it was a kind of an explicit move. Is like, look, I'm actually going to record these foolish ideas for posterity's sake, and be like, this, this is the quality of thinking at present, right now. How did this happen? You know, people listening, let's not make this mistake in the future. Once, hopefully, the modern academy uh, implodes or changes radically. So that was part of my motivation. And uh, <laughs> so um, there was a professor. Uh, a philosophy professor who I really personally liked. Uh, his name was Dr. Emrys Westacott at uh, Alfred University, where I got my degree. And he was a British guy, just very sweet, but I thought rather foolish. And the reason I thought he was foolish is because he was a relativist. He was a hardcore relativist. There is no okay. such thing as objective truth. Everything is relative, blah, blah, blah. And to me, that's rather low-hanging fruit because to say that everything is relative is itself an objective claim. So you, you gotta have some <laughs> okay. access, even if it's limited access, you gotta have some access to objective truth. So I thought this would be a great, a great first person to talk with. It's a professor, it's at my alma mater, it's the beginning of Patterson Pursuit, and we're gonna talk about um, some very basic ideas as their objective truth. And we're gonna record the uh, arguments of a relativist. To my great surprise and delight, he actually changed his mind after, not as a result of our conversation, after mm -hmm. like 40 years or something, 30 years of being, he called himself a dyed-in-the-wool relativist. And while I was there, he was a relativist. And the time that I left from the time I uh, interviewed him, he actually thought, you know, I actually think there is objective truth. We can know some things like the cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Con experience is happening. Consciousness <laughs> is taking place, and I know it. And I was like, wow, that's a... That's a wonderful surprise. So the first, the wow. first interview was with that guy, and um, 
and yeah, he changed his mind. So we did, we actually agreed on quite a lot. <laughs> forty years. Yeah, thirty. It was like that's, thirty or forty years. That's that's insane. And it was, and props to him too, because at the further you go along, the longer you. Uh, build on top of your fundamental ideas, the harder it is to change, man. Yeah, the it's more such, evidence you have. Yes, and and the <laughs> the more fundamental, it's just exponentially harder. Something like right. the existence of objective truth, whether or not it exists and whether or not you have access to it, is so fundamental to the rest of your entire worldview. I mean, it's close to close to base level, and yet, yeah, after three decades of and being a philosophy professor teaching people this stuff, he changed his mind. So, props to Emrys. <laughs> Um, I'm interested in how people become uh, libertarian, yeah. especially when uh, when they're like ANCAPs like me, because um, I grew up kind of like neoconservative, mm-hmm. um, you know, got disinterested in politics a little bit in college. Then I got swept up in this new right uh, movement with uh, Trump. And, you know, I kind of went down this like alt-right rabbit mm-hmm. hole a little bit. And through that, I discovered uh, like Rothbard and uh, Walter Block. Interesting. And, and uh, you know, reading Anatomy of the State and Defending the Undefendable really changed my position. Mm. It, it kind of was weird because I had a couple of years built up of all this uh, uh, evidence, you know, to support my beliefs. And then mm. I just had, a, you know, so much cognitive dissonance. It just like built up and... You know, it almost felt like my head exploded, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I and I just, you know, realized the flaws of my thinking. Mm. So I'm wondering if you um, if you grew up libertarian or, mm. you know, if you're ever a neocon. Um, so I was more neocon, I would say, uh, more like uh, like probably closer to the traditional conservative end of the spectrum. I mean, that's what my parents were. Mm-hmm. So that's just what you kind of inherit as a child. Um, yeah. Yeah, a little bit neoconservative flavors, and then it was it was Ron Paul that was like, oh no, this is this okay. is the the powerful arguments, and then um, yeah, that sucked me into Austrian economics, and then from the you know, Austrian economic perspective, I was like, oh wow, I need even more significant revision um, to my worldview because the the limited functions of the state that I thought were necessary might not actually be necessary for the actually the same kind of abstract reasons as we don't need the post office to be monopolized. Like if you, as, as a, as an economic principle, if you don't need economic monopolies, that means you don't need government. And then that's like shocking, but that's what a government yeah. is, is fundamentally a monopoly. Um, now that being said, I'm still, so I had a, I had kind of the neocon phase, libertarian phase, the minarchist, limited government, like really small government phase, the anarchist phase, I'm mm-hmm. still trying to to grow and learn. So um, there are some arguments now that I'm more open to that are criticisms of the, the market anarchist position. They're not necessarily economic. I would say they're almost purely psychological. They come from now investigating humans a little bit more. Um, and actually, there's an interesting case for monarchy. I've heard uh, several arguments that sound totally crazy, um, especially to a to a rabid anarchist like myself, um, but actually, uh, upon more careful consideration, I'm like, okay, well, I I don't think it's a coincidence that the most successful forms of government historically have been monarchies, and I think you could make a case that monarchy is at least a better form of government than something like democracy. I know I know there are some libertarians that make that argument. I think Hans Hoppe makes that argument. I've actually never read that book that that argument is in, but. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm open to being wrong about 
market anarchism in the world at present with humans as they are. Maybe someplace in the mm -hmm. future, or maybe with a very small set of humans. Um, but yeah, still growing. <laughs> yeah, my my whole thing with that is that, I mean, it's it's not going to happen. And Kapistan, you're not going to wake up and you know all of a sudden the government's going to be gone. So I I think just pushing everything in the right direction, mm -hmm. you know, no matter how you do it, is is well, what I'd rather see. So let me challenge that. So there's okay. um. There's a Bitcoin entrepreneur named Roger Veer. Are you familiar with him? No. So he's uh, he's an early investor in Bitcoin, very much a Rothbardian type libertarian. And he is working on purchasing an island, I think in the Caribbean, or maybe there's some others that they're researching, purchasing an island and then essentially saying, hands off, this is Ancapistan. Um, and they're in the work, I think it's called the the uh, free free society project, something like that. If you just Google Roger Veer um, Island <laughs> Island or something, yeah, yeah that'll sure probably find come it. up. So, uh, and then there's another there's other there's another circumstance of Liberland and um, and there's a Terra Nullis, uh, no man's land in Europe that a libertarian wants to claim. He's I don't know if he's an ANCAP, but he wants to claim it on legal rights for some interesting legal reasons. Um, so I think there are actually potentially some circumstances in which you could have uh, freedom like that, kind of like overnight. Now, on net, 300 million people in, in the US, no, I don't think that's, that's going to happen. But I do think because it's possible, like the seasteading too is an interesting idea. I think it might be possible. So uh, uh, because I think it's possible, even in the short run, to have radical, radical freedom, I think it's very much worthwhile to kind of explore the ideas and see if it would work. Uh, one more criticism, actually, of, of this idea. So an interesting experiment happened in Liberland where, uh, so it's, I think it's like an island in, uh, it's on the, co the border of Croatia and Serbia, something like that. And uh, neither country claimed it for legal reasons. And so this libertarian went there, figuratively put his flag in the ground and said, okay, well, this is now going to be Liberland. This is going to be my area since nobody claims this land for like 15 years or something. But what also happened is, uh, I hope I get the story correct. Um, there was another group of anarchists, I think they were Bitcoiners, who were kind of mischief makers. And they also got to the land and were, were causing trouble and said, no, 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 we actually claim this. And then I think it was resolved, uh, well, it was definitely resolved peacefully, but I think they came to some kind of an agreement. I don't know if somebody was paid off or something, but um, already at the very beginning of like little glints of maybe this can be a free territory, you already had a difficult group conflict. So, and that's just as a weird circumstance. So with something, if Roger Veer makes his island, island, I think it's conceivable that at least at the beginning, it might draw all the wrong people, you know? It might yeah. draw people that are really looking for a haven from governments because they're up to no good. That doesn't mean in theory that's a problem with anarchism. It just means in practice, even if you get a little free territory, it might kind of implode because it's going to draw the wrong people at the beginning. Hmm. Yeah, that, that that could be. Yeah, it's it's a little weird. Um, yeah, it's it's a little weird for someone to be claiming that something is Liverland because what 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 they can claim is this is my property. <laughs> like, can you? Yeah. How can? How do you have the authority to claim that everything should operate under libertarian law? <laughs> oh, oh, well, this is a very interesting question. So there's a practical consideration, which is um, 
in Europe, the idea that you're going to say this is now this is now like anarchist land. Um, it it makes sense that the way he went about it was he's trying to go the legal road. Like he's actually got connections with ambassadors and various countries and stuff. So he's trying mm -hmm. to do it like the official way that would be recognized. You know, planting your flag is is the right. official way that's recognized of claiming territory. And then he wants it to be like minimal state. So it's like, oh, we're going to be official, but you're going to have a lot of freedom here. But there's actually a much deeper philosophical question, which is, in fact, how do you justify the the existence of property in the first place? Like, who are you to say that there's some area of Earth which is now yours because you've done something to it? Where do you where do you get that concept from? We don't have to go into that, but uh, it's a difficult <laughs> question. Yeah, yeah, I haven't really con considered that one. <laughs> it's just, I don't, I don't know. It just seems like a, it's it's just inherent in what we do. Like it's, so, it's, it's just describing, you know, so, how, how things work. I, but, 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 uh, so imagine you do that. You've got your, your, uh, your piece of territory and then I just walk on it and take, you know, you've got an apple tree on your, your property and I just take the apples. Then, then we could just describe what happened and saying, well, I took the apples. So apparently they're not yours. <laughs> uh, one more thing yeah. on that. Uh, there's a, I, I think he's a Russian philosopher, a uh, Russian anarchist, a left-wing anarchist um, philosopher named something, something Proudhon, I think was his name. And he had a famous quote that he said, uh, all property is theft. And the idea was that um, everybody has equal right to the earth, to all of the land. Now, you may disagree with that. I certainly disagree with it. Um, but it's not so straightforward why why that is wrong. I think I think the kind of fundamental justification for property rights actually probably comes from practicality's sake. It's like, look, if we adopt these conventions, <laughs> we have peace, we have prosperity, um, and we uh -huh. don't have people like stealing from each other all the time. <laughs> yeah, these are these are the sort of questions that will make you a relativist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just like, man, I, I don't know. <laughs> So maybe if I have more free time, like I'll. Uh, yeah. But but last thing on that though, you know, there's a difference between I don't know, and we can't know in principle, and there is no truth. So just because it might be a difficult question and we might not know, does is a very different different claim than saying there is no answer, which would be the relativist position. Yeah, that that is true. <laughs> so <laughs> so there is truth. I just don't have time to figure it out. Fair enough. <laughs> um. Yeah, so I just want to ask you one last question. Sure. Um, let's say you're God, mm. and uh, you can make everybody read and understand one book on a oh, deep, my. fundamental level in the way you, that you understand it. What book do you pick and why? It's called Square One, The Foundations of Knowledge, written by Steve Patterson. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm actually, waiting on somebody to pick their own book. So. Okay, uh, well, I'm going to commit to that one. And the reason All being, right. because uh, it's very short, and it's... It's I call it the foundations of knowledge because it is the most fundamental questions I think that there are, which is, um, does truth exist? Can we have access to any objective truth or is everything relative? Can we, and an additional question, um, can we be certain about anything? Are there any truths not only that we have access to that we can be certain of their accuracy, which gets you into questions about the relationship between logic and all of existence? And I have a I have a phrase in there which is uh, kind of a I don't know a fundamental phrase in my worldview that logic and existence are inseparable, and I make the case that logic and existence are inseparable. And I think when I when I personally discovered that 
um, it was completely life changing for me. And like, is just driving all of my behavior and is the most important phrase uh, in my philosophy in my in my own like in my own conceptual system. Mm -hmm. So uh, the reason I wrote the book is because I want everybody to to have that same understanding and insight. So if I if I could force anybody to read it, but that's the one it would be. <laughs> that's, I mean, I guess it, that's why you wrote it. Yeah, yeah, right. It's very <laughs> short, too. So if anybody's interested, you can pick up it's short and cheap. You can pick up a copy for like 10 bucks, a paperback for like 10 bucks. Um, it's a very short read. OK, yeah. Do you have that on the website? Yeah. OK, great. Yeah. Everybody go out and get a copy of Steve's book. All right.